1: now that i have told you about henry darger's story and how mike Lindsay and i created the outsider project i think it's time to talk to other artists who have been inspired by darger's work as i started thinking about who i could get in touch with to discuss henry darger's legacy one name immediately came to mind grayson perry grayson perry is a widely acclaimed contemporary artist and Turner Prize winner. He discovered Henry Darger as early as the 70s, just a few years after his death. This discovery, he says, impacted his whole career and artistic expression. Over the years, through his fascinating work, he has focused on different topics from sex to gender, as well as political and social issues. I was very lucky and grateful to be able to share a long and rich conversation with Grayson Perry about Henry Dogger and many underlying topics, including how trauma can turn into art, the importance of therapy, of secrecy, and of believing in oneself as an artist. I hope you will enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I did having it. Hi, Grayson. Hello. I'm very happy and honored to have you on our podcast. Could you please introduce yourself to the few people who don't know you yet?
0: Yes. Okay, so I'll start with that then. Um, I'm Grayson Perry. I'm an artist and uh, I'm best known, I suppose, for making ceramics, but I've also made tapestries, prints, cast metal, all sorts of things. I won the Turner Prize in 2003. I do a lot of television broadcasting and I also do... uh, live shows as well so I have a lot of interest I suppose I my main subject nowadays when I was when I was younger it was kind of sex and autobiography but then uh, as I got older it's more about social issues I suppose my work so you use a
1: lot of different mediums to to express your, your ideas. It can be uh, uh, craft work, but also in you know, another way, your television can be also another medium for you.
0: Oh, yeah. I wouldn't call my television art, though. No, it's television. I'm, I'm very strict about the traditions that I work with. And so when I make ceramics, I make quite traditional seeming ceramics. And when I do a tapestry, it looks like a tapestry. And when I make a television program, it's like a popular television program that is watched by a wide audience. So I'm very strict because I think that one of the things that art suffers from terribly is sort of dragging things into the art gallery and think that's, and that gives it enough significance. But I like to actually make things that are special. So there's a lot of detail, there's a lot of craftsmanship in my work. You know, people, who aren't necessarily regular art gallery goers appreciate my work because it, you know, it has a lot of skill in it, I suppose. So I've always kind of appealed, you know, one of my big issues, if you like, is trying to widen the audience for contemporary art.
1: Sure, I understand. So um, as you know, the podcast is about Henry Duggar, his life, his art, but also his legacy. And I'm very excited to speak with you because I think Henry Duggar has been a major influence on you and your art. So can you tell me, first of all, how you discovered his art?
0: Yeah, I was, weirdly, I was just looking online at the archive of the Hayward Gallery, which is in central London here. And looking at the exact dates, and it was the the spring of 1979. And I was uh, 19 at the time. And one of the tutors at my uh, art college organized this little trip. It was just a a few of us in his car. And we just drove up to London. And we went to the Outsiders exhibition at the Hayward Gallery, which was an absolute revelation to me as a young art student. You know, I was in my first year of being an art student. And I was completely bowled over by this is a different way of making art. And of course, one of the artists that really struck me was Henry Darger. I mean, this would only have been six years after his work was discovered by Nathan Lerner. And so um, I, yeah, I was, I, and it was the story of it as well, of course, which is sort of romantic and sort of scary. And they didn't quite understand him so well then, maybe. And so that that kind of idea that you know they found all this work in it and it had all these kind of strange nude ambiguous looking children in it and things I think that was the headline but it certainly made an impression on me and I think that that exhibition basically informed my aesthetic you know the, the fact that I didn't need to follow art history and of course when I was a child I had a very strong imaginary world I think that I latched onto that idea that I didn't have to follow the fashion of what was going on in contemporary art at the time.
1: Yeah. So, but but in what ways there has been an influence on you on your art? Because is it his imagery, his identity as an artist, or his life story,
0: or all of it? Um, I think initially it was the techniques he used, you know, and I suppose it was that like I could kind of see that there was a kind of similarity in the way that children play. And and when I was a child I had this sort of playscape. And there's something about the, the rhythm of his language and the space that he paints, this you know, that 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 was very influential on me because that seemed to chime with this idea of having an imaginary world that was private. And it was really mainly a communication between his unconscious and his conscious. It wasn't really aimed. I don't think at an audience outside of himself. So that really, I think looking back on it, this is me, you know, um, with, with 2020 hindsight, but I think it's the nature of the work that it's a private world that we're allowed a glimpse into. And I think it's, I remember with my daughter when she was playing with her doll's house once, you know, she, I kind of taught her to play in many ways. We used to play a lot with her dolls house and stuff. And then one day she was sort of be, she'd be talking the little dollies in the dolls house and and having little conversations with them. And she caught caught me eavesdropping on her and watching her play. And she sort of turned to me with a cross face and sort of said, "This is private, Daddy." You know, and I and I immediately knew what that was like as a child to have that interior monologue where it's almost like a dream state. And I think that Henry Darger's work, or how I interpret it is, or everything in the work is Henry Darger in the same way as that everything in a dream is the person who's having the dream. It's just, They're all metaphors and the narrative is all constructed from the emotional superstructures of the person who's having the dream. So it, I think that they're, because you know, he, he even has within you know, the, the, the novel and the paintings, you know, he has lots of different characters called Henry Darger or versions of Henry Darger, which kind of imply that, you know, he is all the little girls. He is the Blengins. He is the soldiers. He is everyone in, in the thing. And I think that that, you know, psychologically that rings very true. And especially when I was starting to have a lot of psychotherapy, when I was in my late thirties, I went back to Darger very much. And, to see it through the lens of what i was learning about psychotherapy because i learned quite a lot of practical stuff i could see the process you know i I, that was when i really enriched my appreciation of his work during that period we sigh for the child slaves, dread the pains of the new, their raking sorrows are many, their joys are few, none are singing, none are dancing, all in sorrow, none entrancing. Welcome the good soldiers,
1: they welcome the true. I feel that there is some similarities between Darger and you, like you experienced some traumas in your childhood, uh, I think when your father left or with some kind of aggression or with your father-in-law. So before you started the therapy, do you think that you already started your therapy 20 years before by doing art or even creating your transvestite alter ego, Claire?
0: Oh, totally. I mean, you know, one of the marvels about human beings is that they can take pain and trauma and deal with it in a way, sort of transform it into either, you know, sort of certain ritualistic behaviour like fetishism or through into art. You know, we we deal with it. We replay the dramas of our childhood. I mean, a lot of, you know, um, so-called kind of unusual sexual practices are kind of replaying the dramas of childhood in a ritualised way because the patterns of emotion were laid down as a child, and they've become kind of sugar-coated almost. I think what happens in, with, when you're a child is you go through all of the, the kind of narrative of your childhood, the, the traumas or the pleasures, and then when you reach puberty, it's almost like you cash in your chips. And it's sort of like, you know, you go to a window with these chips, and you go, oh, well, this has happened to me, this has happened to me, this has happened to me. And the person behind the window hands you back your sexuality and sort of says, well, yeah, you're going to be a bit like this and a bit like that and a bit like the other. And um, you'll go, okay, and that's it. I'm afraid to say that might be it. You know, you might not realise that's it because there's many people who don't, you know, fully ap- appreciate their own sexuality and much, much later in life. But um, I think that's the process, basically. And the art, you know, the art is also a way of dealing with the unconscious. You know, I think a lot of the process of art, all art is unconscious speaking to unconscious. And that's what's brilliant about it is that, you know, it's very, very fast. You walk into an art gallery, you see an artwork, and you kind of get it almost instantaneously. And you might not be able to put it into words, but if you're an art lover and an art appreciator, you get the language, the visual language, the tone of it, the emotional things that are going on. And I think that that's why art works so well for people like Henry Darger and myself in that, it's a way of manifesting what's going on that is inchoate. It, you cannot put into words. And so that's certainly the same process as I had. I mean, I see so many similarities to what I was doing. I did all these kind of comic books when I was a very young teenager, when my sexuality was first coming down, coming along, you know, and looking back at them, you know, I, I haven't got them anymore, but, you know, remembering what they were like, they were so similar in tone to a lot of the things that henry darger he carried on that process throughout his long life and so he becomes a really good artist and i think that's something that often people who don't know much about outsider art you know they sort of think oh they're good they're like children you know they're not they're really good artists. henry darger is a really good artist that's why he's so celebrated he has a fantastic natural sense of of composition color and surprise and freshness all time. And I think that, you know, that that's why he's so celebrated now.
1: That's true. And regarding therapy, I I completely agree with you when you said that there is two kinds of people, those in therapy and those who should be. So are you still in therapy today?
0: Me? No, I had it for sort of six years and I, and I, I sort of learned, I did a course where I learned quite a lot about the, the technical side of it. And, um, It stood me in amazingly good stead, particularly in my broadcasting career. It's very useful. It's, I find it a way of looking at the world and of course I'm married to a therapist so you know if, if I need to sort of pop up I can always just have a a, a conversation with my wife um
1: yeah I still I'm still in therapy in 30 years but it helped me a lot to do even to create my own music I, I before I didn't dare to be a, a composer because the aim or the the goal was too high or that I couldn't allow myself to be so therapy for me was definitely a life survival yeah
0: yeah, I, I think it's, you know, for artists, a lot of artists are scared of it. They're like, they think that their quirks are their creativity. But I've always described it as someone cleaning up your tool shed, you know, where they, they come in, they don't throw the tools out, but they throw the things that are no use out, like, you know, certain attitudes or habits you have. So I, I thoroughly recommend it to any creative person.
1: Yeah. And I feel some other similarities between Dagger's art and yours. I mean, some of your artworks may look cute and almost naive until you take a close look. So where details can be more serious, dramatic, or even political. Do you, do you feel the same with Dagger's art? Oh,
0: yeah. No, I mean, I think that, you know, he's, he's completely uncensored because he was working for himself, really. When I saw his work, you know, that certainly played into the way I I realised that to be a good artist, you have to be vulnerable and open. You can't pretend. You know, I think whenever I meet students, I say, I'm not interested in people who want to be artists. I'm interested in people that want to make art. You know, the people who are driven to make art and are committed to it. And they need to do it. And I think that, you know, Henry Dargo, you know, what is so special about him and many outsider artists is that kind of that they are driven. It's spontaneous. They don't think about an audience. They don't think about having exhibitions. They need to make the art. And I think they do it, Holy, or you know nearly holy for themselves they do it they want to see it manifested
1: yeah it's really art by necessity and and not to be famous or liked uh, you know where the society is about so much to be liked now through social media so it's really something that's uh it's interesting with uh, henry
0: dagger i think it's legitimate though, that people want an audience people who like to do art you know they often think oh it must be such fun being an artist but as soon as you become a professional in any field it becomes a very different thing because you have you're immediately sort of putting yourself up against art history and also the judgment of the crowd and critics and you know you're making a living at it and so it's a, it, it's a very serious difficult uh, occupation and I think that people think because they enjoy doing a bit of painting at the weekend that that must be what your life is like and it's not it's something more serious and and. That kind of step from being a kind of uh, enthusiastic amateur to being a professional artist, you know, it takes a lot of courage because you're, you're putting yourself out there. This is my story. This is my song. Blessed assurances. Glendoliner is
1: mine. Of what and foretaste of glory and divine. Air of nations purchased from God. and one thing that Henry Dagger's story really underlines is a question of social class also particularly how hard it can be for an artist coming from the working class to declare themselves an artist or to be recognized as such. Is that something you can re- relate to or
0: oh totally, totally I mean you know my mother said it the classic line you know when you should aren't you gonna go and do a proper job and of course it took me. 20 years to actually make a living from my work but I've always found coming from a working class background was kind of there was a there was an advantage to it in that I didn't suffer fools gladly I didn't buy into the bullshit it was very much I was very open I think you know I, I, I was an open book for good and bad you know I, I when I was young I had a terrible temper uh, as well as being kind of having lots of fun and, and being very open creatively. Because when you, with your, you know, anybody that's done therapy will realise that, you know, you can't choose which emotions to turn on and off. You t- either turn them all on or all off. And so you've got to deal with the consequences of that. I think, you know, in Britain, particularly England, really, a middle-class person is quite uptight, you know, and it's a disadvantage when it comes to the arts, to being up to be, being uptight. They're governed by... Pr- desperation to do the right thing that is not a way to make art I think that I always felt that having a working class background had a certain advantage to it and I mean with the days when I went to art college when it was free a high proportion of the students that I was at art college with were working class and the tutors used to you know to their credit that when they were selecting students they would make sure that you know certain parts of the country certain ethnic groups certain people from different classes were all represented in the community of the art school. And that was a very good thing that they did, I think, and made us feel valid.
1: We have particularly focused on, on this podcast series on Henry Dargers, the Vivian girls mostly, and the way they challenge gender stereotypes and, and gender identity has been, I believe, one of a very big theme in your works. Have you been inspired by Dargos Vivian's girls? at the time when you discovered that in uh, in seventy
0: nine? Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's quite interesting all the various theories that people have about why why the Vivian girls have penises and things. My interpretation of them is is that because they are Henry, you know, like every every other character in his stories is Henry. Then that, that why wouldn't they have a penis? Because you know he has a penis. I don't think some people have said it was because he'd never seen a naked woman. I don't think that's true. I think often people think that outsider artists are much more secluded from mainstream culture than they are. I mean, Henry Darger has references to the popular culture of his time all the way through his work. And he was very aware of it through all the source material that he used. So I think that, you know, I think he'd definitely seen a naked woman. Um, And so I think that the penises really are an unconscious manifestation of the fact that the Vivian girls are, you know, sub personalities of Henry, you know, he identified whether, whether he was, you know, he had a a, a part of him that would have liked to have put on a little frilly frock. I don't know. Certainly around the time, you know, when I did therapy, that's when I really kind of threw out the, the conventions of the transvestite world. I mean, I've been a transvestite since I was 12 and I remember around the time my therapy sort of thinking, because I bought, you know, I used to go to a lot of clubs and gatherings of transvestites, and there was a kind of orthodoxy within that community of like you had to look like a glamorous real woman. And then suddenly, I, I thought, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, I, so I sort of immediately kind of thought, well, what dresses would I want to put on? And, and I started wearing. Like, I used to have them made like little girls' dresses and things, and it was sort of like, yeah, this is much more fun. And it, and, and I quite enjoyed the fact that you know walking along the street. Um, I wasn't deceiving anyone. I was a man in a dress. And that suddenly felt very right. You know, I wasn't pretending to be something I wasn't. Yeah, that was refreshing, really. And, um, it took a lot of courage, but I kind of, you know, when you're driven by your own fetishism, that tends to come along. <laughs>
1: Is cross-dressing a form of art to you or is just uh, who you are?
0: I think every, you know, when you're an artist, it leaks into everything you do. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm a very creative cross-dresser. I'm a creative. Motorcyclist, you know, I I design custom bikes, so it's like kind of art leaks into everything. And now all my out, a lot of my outfits are designed by art students because I've for like sixteen years now I've been running a, a course with art students, and they they design my outfits for me. So yeah, I wear. I've got a huge wardrobe, a very bizarre clothes.
1: Do you think that one day you will do an exhibition, or that they will exhibit your dressing room like they did for David Bowie? Or <laughs>
0: I mean, they had a few a few of my dresses in the show at La Monet, um, and we you know we usually have a few. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm never a big fan of fashion exhibitions because the clothes always look dead when they're not on the person.
1: not only gender identity that got darker a lot of criticism but also violence on children and the perceived sexualization of the little girls have you also sometimes felt that you, like your heart was saying things out loud that people didn't want to hear uh,
0: i mean children have a sexuality you know i i i was i was into bondage when i was about seven you know i think i think this idea that children are somehow they're trainee adults you know they're not they don't live in this foreign land necessarily that they're innocent and should be protected of course but you know they they have a sexuality for sure I think that Daga's work is just a reflection of the the kind of unconscious processes that go on in everybody whether they're willing to admit them or not is another matter or whether they're fully aware of them you know that's why therapy is so interesting is because it burrows in and gets you to realise the kind of engine of your unconscious and how it's driving your behaviour and uh, I think that, you know, Henry Darger's work in many ways is, you know, fantastically long and complex outpouring of that. It never bumped up against reality. You know, in my early work, I used to put a lot of things, but of course they were on ceramic vases and nobody was going to get offended by a vase. You know, the police were never going to raid a pottery exhibition. And so uh, I used to put on some quite sort of challenging imagery on my early work because it was sort of you know handcrafted pottery nobody if I'd have been working in large black and white photography or video I probably would have had more trouble but pottery nobody you know nobody really takes it seriously somehow. And I, I used that prejudice to my advantage.
1: Do you think that Henry Dagger was afraid to show his work because of uh, the his nudity or the, or just he was just not interested to show it to, to the others?
0: I think he was playing like, you know, it was the same impulse as you have when you're a child. He was doing it for himself. He was building a world. I mean, he obviously enjoyed it because, he, he you know, he had a great facility for it. I mean, I remember... Kyoko, you know, she said something like, um, oh, Henry, you're a good artist. And he said, I know. Henry wouldn't have known that there was a path for him to take, maybe even, or understood it or wanted it to be part of that world. His class, his um, position, his, you know, mental health or whatever would have, prevented him from having the confidence yeah
1: maybe it was just like yoko said he was like a child and like a child as you say about to your daughter when she was a child when she was playing it was private and maybe henry was also for him his work was private because it was his own world maybe
0: yeah and it was you know it's driven by his sort of unconscious impulses and everything had a You know, he had sort of metaphorical weather. I mean, what is very interesting to me, how fascinated he was by the weather, because the weather is the perfect metaphor for emotions. You know, because of the nature of it, the changeableness of it, the all encompassing of the way it can, you know, whether sun or wind or storm, they can take you. It can take you over in the same way as as your emotional weather can. And so it's this. And then the wars. It's a very, very complex metaphor. I don't think in the history of art I can think of such a complex metaphor. It must be one of the most titanic works of unconscious metaphor that's ever been made. Hark, hark, my friend, cannon thunders are swelling. Over Earth's green fields and oceans, wave beat shore.
1: How terrible the truth those fierce thunders are telling. Of that battle where enemies shall be no more. want to talk about social medias because in today's world it seems almost unthinkable to imagine an artist who will spend as much time as Dagger did creating but wouldn't want anyone to know about it and Dagger is a complete opposite of the social media culture that we live in today where you have to show everything you do. Can you tell me about your relationship with social medias and how do you use it and what do you show and what you don't show of your artistic process?
0: Yeah that's a really good question. I think that It's very pervasive, the nature of social media. It's perfectly engineered to inveigle its way into our minds, our brains, our unconsciousnesses. There's teams of engineers out there who have crafted social media and so it fits like a key into the lock of our brains so carefully. I think that one of the things I was immediately aware of when it first came along was that nothing took time to gestate any longer suddenly you know overnight like first thing i was aware of was things like youth trends in youth culture when i was growing up and previous generation something like teddy boys mods um you know various trends even punk rock to a certain extent it grew quite organically over quite a long period of time but now if somebody in the philippines wears a t-shirt, somebody in Chicago will be could easily be copying it by that evening. So it's almost like a hive mind creativity rather than the individual like Henry Darger working away in their room with nobody else knowing. And so when I'm working with social, you know, it, my use of social media is purely on the whole. I mean, I make a few jokes about the TV and whatever, but as I've got more and more followers now, I've got like 200,000 or something. You've got to be so careful now, of course, because the, it, it, the Puritans are out there. So if you make one mistake, you are basically Hitler. I don't put a lot of the things I'm working on. I mean, I'm working on a couple of major projects at the moment you know, that are completely, I would never mention in public. And uh, I just put a little drip out when I need to, and I don't ever really read below the line because it's that, that way madness lies, to, to find out what random person thinks of you. I mean, most of my, my wife checks below the line on my social media accounts, but I don't, I don't, because I'm too sensitive. I don't want to know what they think, good or evil, because it affects, it will affect what I think of it myself. And I think that private conversation between yourself and your work that an artist has, I think that's something to be protected.
1: Yeah. But on the, on the other hand, social media has been very precious this past year because, uh, since the, the pandemic started, I think you, you have created your own art club and, and can you tell us a bit about this project? Because I really love your art club and maybe for the others, we didn't watch it yet.
0: Well, yeah, I've been making television now for, um, yeah, probably 15 years at least. Uh, and we've had a lot of success. And then, uh, so I work, I have a collaborator, Neil Comby, who is my kind of director, collaborator. And he said as soon as the pandemic was looked like happening and the lockdown would happen, he said, we've got to do something. And we suggested something to the channel and they immediately leapt on it. And so within, very few, within less than a month, I think, we, we went from idea to broadcast. And uh, the idea basically was that uh, it's in my studio. We have a fixed rig. We have robot cameras. So that they, it was all health, healthy. We, you know, we weren't, didn't have a camera crew here. Me and my wife working in my studio, and we'd have a theme each week, things like food or travel or the home or the view from the window or nature. And then people would send in their artworks on the, on the internet and a little video, and then we'd interview some of them, and we'd have celebrities and, and comedians who, who like making art as well. And, you know, me, me and my wife would chat about it. And so it's a very nice sort of intimate program, it very quickly became quite cult. <laughs> we had like over a million viewers, you know, uh, for the first episode, and anyway. it very quickly sort of took off. The thing is, we have an exhibition. We, we basically curate an exhibition uh, from all the things that are made on the program as well. No.
1: I've interviewed a lot of people for this podcast and we also made a version in French in which the director of the Musée d'Art Moderne de Paris, Fabrice Argot, and I discussed about the mythical figure of Henry Dagger and if he could ever become like a myth, a reference, a model like Van Gogh, for example. And Fabrice Argot, he thought that it was too late because Dagger didn't have the impact Van Gogh had on other artists. So he said that he wasn't the source of uh, any artistic movement considering how influenced
0: you have been by, by Dark Arts Art, or do you have thoughts about uh, on this? I think the thing is now, you know, I mean, Van Gogh happened in a, mo- in a moment when all the kind of art movements were really, had a distinctiveness because of uh, geography. And, you know, there was that idea of the isms that unrolled over the first half of the 20th century, you know, like surrealism and post impressionism and expressionism and abstract expressionism and, you know, Dada and all these things. And I think that by the time Daga was, um, we knew about him, 1973, I emerged from art school into postmodernism, uh, when there were not, were not such things as movements. Anything could happen. You know, I remember thinking at the time I was like one of those Japanese soldiers that had been fighting the war on an island and then suddenly come out to find the war was over you know and all the isms had stopped there was no right way to make art anymore and so henry is just one influence in the great ocean of art history but he has been very influential on a lot of other artists as well one of the people that i was up against in the Turner of the chapman brothers were very keen on henry dargo as well and you know i i was in a show at the uh, at the folk art museum in um, new york that was all about other artists who were influenced by his work so you know, he is the figure, because he fits everybody's romantic idea of what a outsider artist is like. I think that's the thing. You know, the fact that we didn't know about his work until he was dead is a bit spooky, and he's incredibly prolific. And, of course, he's a very good artist, which is, you know, there's a, lots of outsider artists out there who aren't that good, you know. So I think he, he fits the bill. He fits the bill, you know, and he, he's the perfect template of when people think of an outsider artist or a self-taught artist he is who fulfills the bill perfectly so he i think he is he will be mythologized but not in the huge way that you know van gogh is imprinted on the global consciousness
1: but you you personally consider Darga as an outsider artist still or just an artist
0: that's a good question i mean i think that artists like Darga will be absorbed into the history of art you know i think they will take their place where the border is with, I think that that will sort of fade away, especially the the best examples of it. And I think that the idea of being you know it I mean people like say, um Francis Bacon didn't go to art school. you know there's loads of artists that didn't go to art school. They, they, how do you qualify it? you know, and I think a lot of the outsider artists you know are very aware of art history as well. and a lot of contemporary artists are as obsessive and mentally ill as any outsider (laughs) artist. So I don't, you know, I think the boundary will blur. I think, you know, in some ways, it'll be interesting to see what happens.
1: As a self-taught musician, I wonder if art education cannot become a burden on the freedom of creation.
0: I think that's a really good point. I think art education for me, it was very good in that it, it, it opened up the possibilities of what art could be. It, sort of got me out of my quite conventional idea about what sort of painting and drawing was about. But at the same time, I think that, you know, it's good to be aware that the contemporary art world has very rigid orthodoxies. And I think one of the problems is that it's now, you know, part of university. I'm the chancellor of a huge uh, university that does nothing but art. It's become a little bit over-intellectualized, I'd say. It's, it's in the, you know, a lot of the kind of discourse around the high status of art is in the hand of academics, whether they be curators or writers or uh, historians. I think people have to remember that, like you say, art has its improvised element and self-taught element. It's fun. You know, we, we, people go to exhibitions on their day off. They don't go there for work. They don't go there to learn about some issue. Because a lot of the students now, it's like they're kind of little politician activists rather than artists. You know, all they think about is the issue. They don't think about whether it looks nice. And I think the the art school likes that because it's something it can sort of teach and talk about rather than... You know, something that Henry Darger is, a, you know, absolutely perfect example of an upwelling of creativity from, you know, deep within one's soul. Art school sometimes is, is a little bit, it, the tone of it, I, I find oppressive.
1: Uh, who is inspiring you today?
0: Who's inspiring me today? Well, sort of what's going on in society is always inspiring me, you know. So I'm always looking around, actually, at quite banal things sometimes, you know. But I've got a lot of mileage out of the um, pandemic. I'm working on a bell at the moment, which is uh, to be rung at the end of the pandemic. And then, um, yeah, I'm always looking at sort of patterns in society that kind of interest me politically or socially. And, uh, you know, quite ordinary things, the default is something that really the bits of us that are everywhere we but we don't examine them which is why i've been interested in things like class and identity and masculinity and gender and whiteness you know the the things that people don't question so my new show that i'm doing on the stage show uh is called a show for normal people for normal people yeah because i think that when in my last show i did i because i questioned the audience through a sort of polling uh technique with their little machines that they can give me feedback on and um I sort of I gave them choices of how many different sort of social groups they belong to and, and normal people always came top everybody wanted to be normal and I was kind of shocked by that because as an artist and an art student and whatever I've never strove to be normal you will become what you are roaming alone on your way hitting the road for a thousand miles, the windy city will blow you
1: away. And what's your relationship with music?
0: Ah, hmm. Yes. Well, I'm always listening to music. Um, at the moment, it is. I can't really talk about it because I. <laughs> I'm kind of. Ha- I do have a quite intense relationship with music at the moment, but I'm keeping it under wraps. Just whatever. But yeah, it's. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm consumed with music at the moment. Yeah, just just say that.
1: (laughs) We'll discover something around that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's my next stage in my life. Yeah, I love music. Yeah, deeply, deeply. I listen to it all the time in the studio and uh, you know Spotify and whatever. I let it unroll over me and see what I like. But I do tend to have quite old-fashioned taste. I find. You know, a lot of modern music. um, I I haven't got the kind of emotional framework to to, to understand it or or like it a lot of the time. A lot of the modern warbling I can't handle. It's just because I haven't grown up with it. You know, I think that music is such an emotional thing for us that we tend to, you know, unless you're really in the business and you're constantly listening to new stuff, I just don't have an emotional connection with a lot of more contemporary music. I find it sort of a little bit cold, I like a, I like a, the one thing I love out of any kind of music. So I, I like some rap is because it's got a story. I like a, a story, you know, a narrative song, or a good musical.
1: Many times I've been inspired by visual arts to make music, but have you been uh, inspired by music to make visual art? Or
0: it's dangerous because you know doing anything with music on um, music is so potent and it affects your mood so much that you could be working on something thinking this is great and you've got this great music going on in the background and wow this is really good and then the music stops and you realize what you're doing is rubbish uh because you were kind of your mood was lifted by the music not the art so i find, I, I don't find music necessarily inspiring but i i only put it on when i'm kind of doing what i would call the kind of grunt work of art you know, when I'm doing it, when I need to be inspired, inspiration is pretty corny with me. You know, it comes to me in the bath or whatever. And I I, I constantly have post-it notes everywhere, post-it notes and, and sketchbook. And I sometimes I'll get my laptop out and I constantly having little thoughts that I have to put in, you know, that I might that might manifest into artworks or something else down the line, uh, because I know how precious those so i have a huge amount of inspiration in conversation with other people that's probably the most common way of me getting ideas is just talking to people Or oh, my wife is you know me and my wife we talk a lot when we're walking we shoot the breeze about things and you know we get excited about it and she's probably been the person who's had the most influence on my work she's very knowledgeable about the world of mental health and um, psychotherapy and she's full of ideas about that
1: Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Grayson. It was great to talk with you. and Thank you so much uh, for your time and I hope we we'll meet someday. Well, thank you so much.
0: Great talking to you. Good luck. See you.
1: Outsider is a seven-part podcast series. It was created by Philippe Cohen-Solal, written by Clementine Spiller, and produced by César de Pouillet for Yabasta Records. If you enjoyed the music in this episode, you can listen to The Outsider Album by Philippe Cohen-Solal and Mike Lindsay. The album is inspired by the works of Henry Dogger. It's out now and streaming on all platforms. Watching and marching, listening above, yells of their victory,
0: lost in their love. This is my story, this is my song.